This is Beer and Bee Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Jason, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Messiah of Evil. 1971 shot, released in 1973. Michael, what are we drinking? We are drinking Picnic Lightning from Brewery West. It's a hazy IPA. It's fantastic. What are you getting? Juicy fruit gum. First of all, when you do open this beer, the aroma just it just explodes into the room. I have never actually thought juicy fruit gum, and I thank you for that because it does. It's a total fruit bomb, and, and it's tropical, not citrus. There's a sweet creaminess to it. It's more pineapple, mango, peach, mango, it, and look at that. It looks like a creamsicle. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Yeah. it's. I love this beer. It's Brewery West. They're out of San Pedro. They're local to us. It's regional. They're not coast to coast. If you do know somebody and they can get it to you, do it. Because Brewery West, they're doing some great stuff. They're really, really doing some good stuff. This, I would consider it their flagship AZ. It's delicious. It's great. And this, the can is fantastic. Not sure what this is supposed to rent, except that's hazy. Maybe a little hallucinogenic oh, in it's, terms it's, of it's like a... There's like a skeleton that is also like a plug-in. Like something that you would plug a cord into. Riding like... What is that looks a rabbit? Like, looks like a zombie rabbit. rabbit. And they're flying a flag with a bunch of aliens on it. It's it's completely... Here's the thing. It's a complete weird nightmare. And that works with the movie. Yes. I have 73 the release. And in the movie, somebody goes to the movies. And they're watching a movie from 1974. First of all, this movie is very cool. I liked it. It's not perfect, but it's very cool. Second, there's so much wrong in everything we just said. 71, 73, Sean movie from 74. I chose this movie. Why? Uh, it's a B movie. One of our rules. It has many names. It does. Messiah of Evil, Dead People, The Blood Moon, Return of the Living Dead. It was shot under $1 million. Not a well-known cast. A husband and wife team. They, out, right out of film school, made this movie. It's a genre picture. It's really an art film masquerading as a as a horror movie. And I came across it several years back when I was reading like Lovecraftian movies. And it wasn't on the list. It was in someone's comment. And I found an old grainy version on YouTube. Watched it. Loved it. I can't believe I'm a Lovecraft fan. You're a Lovecraft... We've been to Lovecraft Film Festival. Down in San Pedro. Yes. When yeah. it used to be here we at are, the Warner Theater. We are nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the same thing. Looked up lists of Lovecraftian, Lovecraft or Lovecraftian films. I can't believe this isn't on it because on anyone that I've come across, there are so many. It's clear they've read The Shadow Over Innsmouth. There is so much about it that is very Innsmouth. Real quick. A woman, she loses track of her father, who's living in Point Dune, California. Small coastal town. Yeah, it is a small coastal town. Her father would, would summer there, then he moved there permanently. She goes to find him, even though he's been telling her, do not come here. And so she goes anyway and sets off a series of events. This is a very insular town, I think would be the word for it. Agreed. And weird things happen. I watched it. On Amazon, which is no longer there. 
The original version I found on YouTube years back was a scratchy version. Code Red has a fully remastered version that I think you could find. And I highly, highly recommend it. And on that Code Red, which you can now find on YouTube, is a little vignette about, it's called Remembering Messiah of Evil, Part 1 and Part 2, where they interview the directors and writers, Will and Will Hayek and Gloria Katz, husband and wife team. She passed away in 2018. They were friends with George Lucas. They have some renown. They wrote the screenplay for American Graffiti. They wrote the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom screenplay. They have some renown. And they were afforded the option. Their agent came and said right after film school, hey, we have some money. You can make a horror movie. And it has to be a horror movie. The interview is great because they said, we really wanted to make an art film, but we made a horror movie because that's what we're required to make. They did not end up finishing the movie. There was some money issues, contractual issues. So the movie was finally edited by someone else. So that's why it has this odd vibe to it. That makes sense. We bookend it, present, then we go flashback, and then we come back to the present. And spoiler alert, we will discuss this entire movie. So if yeah, you have I, not watched this and you don't want to know how it ends, pause right now, go watch the film. Watch the movie, come back, hang out with us. <laughs> <laughs> There's a woman, she's in an asylum, and she's doing a voiceover, and she's walking the corridors. It's very hazy, kind of like this beer. No, it really is. There's yeah. a dreamlike quality to this no. entire film. Takes you out of yourself. And she's talking about how they don't know what's going on. There's a they, and they're going to get you. No one will hear you scream. So that's really interesting because that intro has two parts. It has that scene where she's doing voiceover on that corridor. And there's a scene where a man is running down the street. And he's out of breath. He ends up going to a backyard with a pool. That person is Walter, Walter Hill. Hill, who did all the Alien movies. And what's the tagline of that movie? In no. space, no one can hear you scream. Exactly. Absolutely awesome. He also directed one of my favorite mid-80s action movies, Extreme Prejudice. He produced The Warriors. 48 Hours. I mean, he, I he mean, did a he ton is, of stuff. He was like a Sam Peckinpah disciple. There's a confusing aspect to this whole story and it starts there. He goes into that little courtyard. He thinks he's saved, but this woman cuts his throat. But we find out later that these are not throat-cutting type people. They're cannibals. They don't do that any other time. There's a ton of confusion in this movie. I've said it over and over and over. I think this movie would be perfect for a remake. Because I think there's enough on the frame to make a cool movie. I just don't think they had the money, obviously, and it didn't cut quite come out because there are some weaknesses in it. There is. And those opening intro scenes, depending on what version you watch, if you watch one version, you're only going to get the score by Philin Bishop. And he did a couple horror movies. Of course, this, The Severed Arm, Kiss of the Tarantula. But he has this odd music. Some versions will also include... Hold On to Love, written by Elaine Turtle and sung by Ron McKinnon. I love that version with that song. We'll link out to the show notes. She has a blog. She was a folk musician. She still makes music. I think she married... Um, her husband's last name is... I can't remember what her husband's last name is. They're actually at a folk festival this year. But I love that song. I also like Phil and Bishop's 
odd score to this movie. It's very 70s when you hear it. Then we bounce, we find out, you know, Arletty, who was our main character, her father would go to Point Dune. He was writing letters basically saying, you know, it sounded like he's a crazy person and don't come here. Stay away from here. In classic horror movie fashion, she has to go there. And so she stops at a gas station in the middle of the night. And you know what the guy who's working the gas station is doing? Tell he, us, Jason. He <laughs> is shooting a gun into dark. In fact, he's shooting so much, he's emptying his clip. And then he says, um, uh, it's, it's just stray dogs. There again, they're on the outskirts of Point Dune. Clearly, he knows something, and he's not giving the full information. His whole mannerism is one of fear. You almost think he's a weirdo, but things are going to get more weird. Arletti is played by Mariana Hill, and her real name is Mariana Schwarzkopf. Norman Schwarzkopf, you might not recognize that name if you grew up during Desert Still. Norman Norman. Yes, exactly. That is a cousin. She was this actress who was in a bunch of TV movies during the 1670s, including Star Trek. She's one of the 19 women who kissed William Shatner during the original run. She was in Batman. She, of course, was Fredo Corleone's wife in Godfather 2. She kind of left Hollywood in the 1980s, went to England, taught acting, really kind of stayed out of limelight. She appeared in public really very limited times. 2012, she did a Star Trek conference. And then she came back to L.A. in 2016 for a premiere of a movie called Chief Zabu, which was filmed in the 80s but not released to 2016. Arletti is telling this story as a flashback while she's in asylum. John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness has Sam Neill telling the story in flashback front of asylum. Both Lovecrafting related movies. We're going to get into the Lovecraft thing. When she lands in Point Doom. <laughs> she's at the gas station. And she's trying to get gas. The guy is very sketchy, very tweaking out, big time. When she's there, this truck pulls up. This red truck with a flatbed on the back. An albino gets out. And this guy immediately, not because he's an albino, but because he's terrifying, just makes your skin crawl. This dude is just like $2. He's getting $2, no knock. I looked it up, Michael. So there was additive to gas to make your engine not have knocks. And I'm not going to dive into details. We can link it out into our show notes. Good idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was common at the time, depending on what type of gas you wanted, where you could ask for that no-knock gas. This is leaded gas time. Exactly. <laughs> The gas station attendant, clearly unsettled by this dude, he goes to put the $2 of gas, which in 1971, $2 went a long way. But he just has to do it. He peeks in the back of the truck and lifts up a blanket, and there's a dead body. And it's the dude from the beginning, from the opening of the movie. He, he's just like, ah, boy, that's a bummer. Arletti comes over and says, I want to pay with a credit card. And, and he goes, the machine's down. He's like, don't you have cash? She's like, I have no cash. Which is kind of surprising in 1971. Just looks at her and says, get out of here. And so she does, but she goes towards Point Doom. There was two bodies in that pickup. Several times watching this. I never picked up that was a guy from running at the very beginning. It took me so many times to watch it. That's the guy. But there's another guy listening to him who has no eyes. Like his eyes have been clawed out. How many movies have we 
watch where the gasoline attendant is an important figure in these B movies. I mean, he is telling her not to leave. And he he looks under it and is like, oh, dead bodies? Well, first of all... Point dude. What am I going to do about it? Well, first of all, I mean, he's telling her from the get-go. She said, am I going to Point Dune? He's like, why would you go there? Nobody goes there. That place sucks. And you mentioned Shadow over Inzimut. And there is a scene in that story where the narrator is trying to figure out, he's running out of man, he's trying to figure out where to go next. This individual says, you know, you could take an old bus, I suppose, he said with certain sanitation, but it ain't thought much of hereabouts. It goes through Inzimut. You may have heard about that, and so the people don't like it. Run by Innsmouth fellow, Joe Sargent, but never gets any customers from here or Arkham either, I guess. Or Letty goes anyway. She gets to her dad's house, and her dad's house basically looks like something from any Dario Argento late 70s, even into the 80s film. Her dad is an artist, but... Everything in this house, every wall is, hey, there's like an escalator. It's like all these murals of people. It completely sends you into this like dream state, like confusion because you just see people. They just look like regular folks painted along the wall. Throughout the movie, you keep waiting for one of those people to be real. It's very disorienting. It's very freaky. I think it's cool. It goes back to what Will and Gloria said, where they intended to make a art movie. Like Tonioni and Godard, similar to their movies, an yeah. Italian maker and a French oh, you maker. Can, yeah, and Tonioni. You can totally see that. Some of the framing is done in such a way where it looks like a piece of art. The gasoline station from the scene before, when they pulled up, there is a American artist named Ed Ruska who did a... Gasoline stations art form in 1963. It looks exactly like the painting. And when you go into Our Lady's father's house, Joseph Lang's house, the perspectives are off. Those people are life size. The vivid use of blue and red in this movie. It Again, reminds me of Dario Argento's Suspiria. It's extremely vibrant, but the content is so dark. And she sits down and starts reading. Her father's diary and it's always july it's extremely dark his journal entries are enough to make you want to leave because something terrible is going on he's nowhere to be found and so she goes into town she goes to a, a blind art dealer Ooh, oh jason a blind art dealer there's a lot going on there isn't there Probably not. I mean, I mean, the people who made the film would probably go, we just thought it was weird and cool. So, first of all, Arletti had come across when she reached her dad's house. She finds a sketchbook slash diary. And you start hearing voiceover during this movie of both her father, Joseph Lang, the artist, and her. In his, the two first statements are like, June 30th. For three nights now, I haven't slept. I don't know how much longer I could keep this up. The visions are coming from areas of my mind that I don't understand. July 2nd. The grotesque images keep crowding in on me. At night, I find myself wandering alone in town. I'm thinking, she should probably read the entire diary right then. Let's get to the end, or skip no, to the you, end you just nibble, and read it. You, you just nibble <laughs> a little bit of the cookie and set it down, Jason. That's, <laughs> that's what you do. When it, when it looks like your father, one of your parents, is completely and absolutely broken mental state, what you do is you just go, I'm going to read this slowly. Like, like 
day by day, and her father is played by actor named Royal Dano. Ah, uh, he's in everything. 1922, 1994. But like the big thing is that he did the voice to Abraham Lincoln's great moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disney. You will recognize his voice. They're at that art, the, the art gallery. The blind art dealer, the guy who helps her, is yeah. a condescending jerk because he thinks everyone's condescending towards Point Dune. Also, an associate editor on the film. Low-budget B-movies, you're this, utilizing this, this people. This film's incestuous. Yeah, Morgan Fisher, like, he was an associate editor. He's editing this movie and also is like, I'm going to play a part because I need to. <laughs> so she's asking about her father, and she finds out that there were people there earlier that day that actually bought some of his stuff. And she went, oh, that's cool. And they said, well, they have to be staying at this place. The Seven Seas. Point Dune is a very small town. We keep being told... And so she goes, I'm just going to go over there and find these people. At that scene at the art gallery, I have to ask you, did you get a phantasm vibe? Absolutely. Because that scene where... There is just... It was weird. Michael goes to that blind woman who's he, who's going to read his fortune and puts his hand in the box. I got that vibe from that scene. Other horror oh, movies fine. that have this very dreamlike nightmarish quality like phantasm i relate to this movie even though they they came after this movie whether actively or not actively i feel like this film influenced a lot of stuff to come really do because there are enough things in this movie that we can go oh that reminds me of a movie that came much later so she cruises over to this hotel the door is open and there's good old elisha cook jr as the insane man, the insane drunkard from Shadow Over Innsmouth. Exactly. That guy, and he's telling this story, this whacked out story about when he was born and his mom was going to feed him to the chickens. That's the quote I wrote down too. But Okay, I I didn't grow up on a farm, but my, my mother did and I know farms. People didn't feed their kids to chickens. That didn't really happen, and I don't think it would go very well because I don't think the chickens would actually eat a baby. That's not how it works. But he's just crazy, and there's a man who looks like a poor man's Peter Fonda with <laughs> with two young ladies, and they're just listening. And Elash Cook Jr. is telling this completely insane story about his life when he was born, and his dad said, hey, we could actually use a boy. He's going on about the blood moon and... Arletti walks into this. And that shot where she opens the door to 237 and you see Elijah Cook, that is a creepy shot. And then the framing of Elijah Cook next to a TV in that room that looks like a painting. It's terrifying. And Elijah Cook Jr., of course, we're fans. He's in every movie ever May. Yes. Particularly like film noir movies, you, you recognize Elijah Cook. He, his IMDb page is the website. Yes. It's pretty much it. I found an interview. I'll, we'll link out to the show notes. He was actually Mr. Outdoorsman. And he spent, a, if he wasn't making a movie, he was up in the Eastern Sierras of California. His last role was in Magnum P.I. playing Francis Icepick. Hofstetter, but he seems like such a great guy. I'm wondering why, like, there's no biography on Elijah Cook Jr. Yeah, and yet, um, yet, yet, we, we might be the people. <laughs> yeah. So no, but he mentions the Blood Moon and this tale from a hundred years ago. Yes. That this is the first mention of it. It will come up again. Yeah. So Tom, who is the guy, and is it Tom or is it 
Thom. So it's Tom. It's like Thom York from from Radiohead. It's acting Michael Greer. Yes. So we find out that he's from aristocracy. He speaks in that slow patrician type tone of somebody who's from money. And basically he travels the world collecting legends. He was just using this guy, paying him with booze and maybe some money. And he's recording these. He's going around. It's like an anthropologist in a way. When Arletti leaves, I mean, she's a little put off. Charlie had left beforehand. Charlie grabs her. He totally does. And says, you have to kill your father. And you can't bury him. Don't bury him. You basically got to burn him. You got to burn him. Going on about they, they can't Shadow over Innsmouth. 100% shadow over Innsmouth. She realizes the townspeople don't want to talk about her dad. Everywhere she goes, not going to say a damn thing about Joseph Lang. Yeah. That Lang fellow. <laughs> and, Who invited out of ten women down to his house. <laughs> <laughs> cheers, cheers. As we're finishing up. This picnic lightning is a great pairing for this movie. The label alone is just so cacophonous. <laughs> I think is the word for it. It's like, what is going on? And that's what you find in this movie is just, what's going on? It's a horror show. You mentioned In the Mouth of Madness. Trying to leave this town. Is like where you try to leave Hobbs End in, in the Mouth of Madness and you like drive out of town and all of a sudden you're back in town. You can't get out of Point Dune. And Michael, after this scene, does Arletti actually try to investigate what's happening to her dad? And after like going to the art show, finding these people, after that, that kind of phase stops and she starts a transformation phase. Yes. I would say this, with all its flaws, it's a beautifully shot movie. Absolutely. I mean, she's got the the bed that's hanging from chains. She's reading her dad's writing, which is really disturbing. <laughs> His mind's letting go. He makes he makes sounds that aren't human. Yes. Like, like imagine that, Jason. <laughs> imagine the the idea of you being alone in your house and something's changing you and you're freaking out. And all of a sudden, you're making sounds, and you go, that's not a human sound. I would leave. I, and also, I don't understand where, like, she just lackadaisically reading her father's diary. I'm, I would have gotten to the end, which is like, get out of here. <laughs> this is the end. Get out of Point Doom. You know what? I think I really quickly would have been comfortable just packing up that diary yeah. and driving away. I can read this in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> I can read this anywhere in Portland, Oregon. I'm not going to read this here because this is a place of insanity. I was at that gas station. When I pulled up, there was a man shooting blindly into the night. And then there was a very terrifying albino dude that came and was just terrifying me. I think I'm good. The actor who was clearly albino, he... He is listed as the albino driver. Exactly. I think his name is Benny Robinson. Benny Robertson. He was found actually in an unemployment office. Remembering Messiah of Evil, we'll link out to it in our show notes. He was just a guy that they found at an unemployment office. No other I'm in D. It's just this movie. And it's terrifying. She's at she, back at her dad's she, house. She wakes up. She hears something. She goes. She opens the door. And Laura is blow drying her hair. Tom and the two ladies, Laura and Tony, have just... Come into her her dad's home. Take a residence. I thought at this point, these were the bad people. Yeah, I assumed... The first be- time I watched this movie, I thought, oh boy, these are the weirdos. They're going to make things even worse and more weird. Because Tom's like, hey, 
Charlie was found half eaten. He was half eaten. <laughs> and they kicked us out. The cops came. They kicked us out of the hotel and all the other hotels wouldn't let us come in, which is really funny because this is a small, small town. They don't like outsiders, but they have multiple hotels. At that scene afterwards, I mean, she just lets them stay there. At dinner time, Tom recollects his history of being a Portuguese aristocrat. And I have to say, when he starts telling his story, it reminded me of Dr. Evil's speech to his therapist, Carrie Fisher, in Michael Myers' Austin Powers, where he's saying, like, my father was a relentlessly self-improving, bludgeoned, I can't even pronounce it, owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. Because <laughs> he's saying, my mom was Portuguese and grew up in a castle. I laughed a little at that scene. There's also something, Jason, in the framing of that that shot, that scene, where it's it reminded me of The Last Supper. The way they were all set out. With Tom, Tom in the middle and the ladies on either side. I don't know if it was intentional. Also, it was the Last Supper that they all had. Tom, the Thom, is so... What did Joseph Lang do while he was in Point Doom that... Dune. Dune. It's not Doom. Point, point Doom. I always want to say Doom because it I, sounds like Doom. No, I, I do. And, and there's also a Point Doom, but I think everybody pronounces it Doome. Yeah. Don't they? <laughs> they pronounce yeah. it poorly because it's Doom... Like Lovecraft story, the doom that came to Sarnap. Yes, but but no, it's Dune, as in Sand Dune. And it's honestly shot on the west side. Uh, there's a Point Dune area next to Zuma Beach where Planet of the Apes was shot there. That's the ending scene. And I'm going to say it's Tom, because I can't pronounce Tom. It doesn't make sense, because they, sell, no, they say Tom all it is the time. Tom. No, it's Tom, and for some reason, T-H-O-M is Tom. Why did he come to this place? Why did he search out Joseph Lang? And now, why is he at Arletti's? I felt like he was sort of an anthropologist. He was also looking. He was a very Lovecraftian character of going around. Collecting old legends, Exactly, exactly. So, and then he takes this random walk. Like, he goes out, walks down the beach, and then we get the first, like, oh, the, the locals, they go down to the beach, light a fire, and stare at the ocean in the night. Um, I call that a red flag. If I was on a beach at night and I saw a bunch of people staring out into the black ocean, lighting a fire, I wouldn't go towards it. I'd go away from it. And Tom does. But he's not completely put off with it. You get the feeling that Tom has seen some strange thing. Tom has the most ham-fisted way to pick up ladies. He's got his vest, his side zipper. He can't quite get it. You ever have a suit that zipped from the side? I mean, his suit looks awesome from the 1970s. No, no, it's it's super cool. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I do have a three-piece suit. I barely wear it, ever. The yeah. vest is buttoned up in the front, I not know. a zipper up the yeah. side. It, that's a very 70s deal. So he's got Arletti. He's like trying to, oh, hey. And she thinks, oh, he's trying to make time with me. And I do have to say, his acting is wooden, is the word I would use. So he tries this ham-fisted way to kind of pick her up. It doesn't work. Meanwhile, Laura is watching from the sidelines. Laura has she's determined... Very, she was a model. She was very selfish. She's going to leave. She points out, he didn't get lost. He came here on purpose. Basically saying that Tom was searching out Point Dune. That he was searching out Joseph Lang. And he came here for a purpose. Which I sort of find a little odd. Simply for the fact that 
when we meet him, he's pretty much up front. That's what he does. He travels the world collecting legends. These ladies, unless they were picked up by him yesterday, they should know that's what he does. And Laura is played by a model named Anitra Ford. And she was a Price is Right model from 72 to 76. And I recently watched a documentary called The Lady and the Dell. And it's funny because you can see Anitra Ford in this Price is Right frame. She's had enough. She tells Tony, hey, I'm heading out. There's a drummer in San Francisco that will take me in. Tony's only concern is that Laura leaves her dope, which... Very 70s turn. I love that she was going to steal his car. This is a completely different time. When you left the keys in your car, people, your, your stuff is all open and you, you leave the keys in it. And this gets to a scene. First, Laura, she's walking through a, it's a subdivision that has not been developed. The houses have not been built, half but they've built, been laid out. Half built houses. I don't know about today, but I remember in the 80s growing up. My friends and I, we'd be like, Ooh. Same thing. We were playing subdivisions yeah, that were built next like to our house. Yeah, we'd sneak out at night. We'd be like, eh, we're going to lock you. I'm assuming this is somewhere in either in Santa Clarita at the time or Orange County that they were building at the time when they filmed this. Everything was filmed in the in the Los Angeles area. And Orange County. Which I consider yeah. Los Angeles, but I'm not from here. <laughs> but I personally think they did a great job. I thought it was nor- much more north. And as Laura's leaving, the red truck... The albino driver pulls up, and she accepts a ride for him. Even though the people sitting in the bed of the truck are just staring up at the sky. And he has an odd conversation about, were you were you moonlighting? Basically staring up to the sky? Yeah. He's listening to Wagner. Which he pronounces Wagner, which is fine. And in fact... They pointed out in Remembering Messiah of Evil that he made a mistake and they thought that was perfect. They're going to leave it in. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to do it. <laughs> do you like Wagner? <laughs> Wagner had this yeah. sort of like overman, this yeah. like huge, like powerful, you know, other people <laughs> taking over yeah. type deal because I thought, you know, there's got to be some connection. Yeah. Wagner can't yeah. be just a <laughs> rando thing. Once again, an art movie, they were just trying to impress but people. No, think, so Laura, Laura's in this truck. I would rather walk down the darkest road the, than it, get into that truck. Exactly. So, and the guy's talking about the waiting, and there everybody was out on the beach tonight. Yeah. And I found lots of little, you know, like... Little creatures were out there, too. Pulls out beach rats. Which I have a huge problem with rats in the first place. Somebody pulls a rat out in a truck... And then he goes, he bites the head off it. He eats it. He eats it. And he's like, you want one? And she's like, um, no, I think I'm going to get out here. And she gets out and they let her go. And then yeah. she find, she sees someone in the distance and she starts following them to a Ralph's. Which Lebowski fans are always going to be. Is there a Ralph's around here? <laughs> it's like, that's always going to be what happens. But no, it, it really is. It, she follows this guy. This person looks over their shoulder, looks at her and keeps walking away. Faster and faster. That's an indication. Don't follow that person. And it leads to one of the most horrific scenes in the movie. Where she goes into Ralph's stark bright lighting. And she's looking around. And there's, first of all, no one in the parking lot. There's no one in the store. Jason, there is not one car. She gets to the meat counter. And there's a bunch of, I'm going to refer to them as ghouls, who are eating the raw meat. They see her. 
And they began to chase her through the store. When she gets in there, she's walking down the aisles. Imagine walking along the aisles of a grocery store and you look down and you see somebody and that person is looking at you and they're walking, but they're just a little bit ahead of you. So they just disappear and she's looking because there's that. They do that little effect and it sort of builds this tension to the point that you that you made where you have these people just swarming. It's sort of methodical. Nothing is hurried. It's just they're like, we've got you. She's running. She gets to the door. She can't get the door. She starts running back through the aisles, which makes no sense. But I mean, at that point, I don't even know what makes sense. Fighter, fight or flight response probably kicks in. It's this scene. There's a documentary called Los Angeles Plays Itself about telling the history of Los Angeles through its, the movies filmed there. And if you haven't seen Messiah of Evil, this is where it shows up. It's a great shot scene. It's horrific. The ghouls are wearing, like, it's black and white. It's interesting listening to the documentary Remembering Messiah of Evil. They point out that most of these ghouls were played by unemployed aerospace workers. Very conservative type of people. Black and white suits. Crew cut haircuts like Johnny Unitas. We get more of the voiceover of Lang's Lang's diary. The fires on the beach. People watching. He mentions this dark stranger. And something happened 100 years ago. And this is also when we get Point Dune is very much other. Because Tony has a radio. She can't get one station. When Tom takes it, he gets a station from Idaho. Is Tom. I think he is the dark stranger. I think he's either related. Somehow There's something going on there. It's very odd, but Point Dune is separate. It's apart from the rest of the world. Arletti wakes up and she's walking around. She sees a portrait of herself and there's blood coming out of her eye. Again. Which is an important tell. Jason, I got to tell you, if somebody said, stay the hell away from here and I went anyway and then there was a portrait of me and blood was coming out of my eye, I go, ah, I got to do better listening. Another reason, it's an Innsmouth thing. I don't think it was a choice. I think she was compelled. And Tom says, Arletti, you should leave. And that's the first time we see this figure in the skylight of the house. Shot so fantastic. And again, it's like so like Italian horror of the 70s, but it was before a lot of that stuff, which is super cool. It's a skylight. It's like the shadow, like the silhouette of a figure, hands on the windows. Watching. Next morning, the cops call Arletti and say, we think you found the father. And Arletti and Tom go down to the beach. They're pointing out, your father was building some art contraption. It fell on top of him. He's dead there. And I'm thinking, like, it's an odd scene. Everything about it was weird. And the police are like, Tom, you should take Arletti out of here. We're not really a tourist town. And yet, there's large Ralphs. There's multiple motels to stay at. The quote, we're not a tourist town, and strangers only bring trouble. <laughs> wow. Finding this was probably no picnic. wham i totally totally slammed it in there right we got it unlike the picnic lightning which and you pointed out these are actually stickers you could remove from the can yeah these will come off you can re-stick them we have a bookshelf (laughs) where it is it's brewery stickers and i think that's on one of them i love it this beer is fantastic oh it is i will vouch for anything they do I've been there. I've had several of their beers, and they do great stuff. And I still like it. 
San Pedro, Warner's Grand Theater, used to have an HP Lovecraft Film Festival that Michael and myself went to. <laughs> Cheers. Will Hayek says this in an interview that he did read Lovecraft when he was younger. Now, I think he intended to make an art film, there's, but there's, there's so much things that you could tie to. And of course, he's one of the people like when we discussed Carnival of Souls, who said, people interpret a lot in my movie. And he goes, I'd like to listen to it. It's not there, but that's a fun thing to do about film. He mentions so, dark gods, old gods. There is no way the person who made this film was oblivious to H.P. Lovecraft. And he it, says he it, was. They said, I've never even heard of H.P. Lovecraft. I'd go, whoa, that's weird. That would be a sign there is a power working beyond, and we all should be scared. So after the beach, they're back at Arletti's place. And you hear the voiceover of Joseph Lang. It's July 20th. And also you hear Tony stating, we're never going to leave this place, are we? Because this day is Tony's last day. Tom says, you should go to a film. And the dialogue's funny. She's like, film? Movie? Ah, a show. Yes. (laughs) And she leaves for that show. This scene kind of jumps back and forth between Tony going to this movie. Arletti is starting to change. Yes. And we hear the voiceover. Lang's body temperature is 85 degrees. I'm going to the doctor. (laughs) I'm Um, 85 degrees. No. No, actually, Jason... You wouldn't go to the doctor because if your <laughs> body be if your body is at eighty five degrees, you're dead. And he's passing blood, not a good deal. And our lady, like she looks in the mirror and she, she sees blood mo- coming out of her ear. And then we get the blood moon. The first yeah. the blood moon is getting bigger. She puts her hand on the hot stove. No impact. She doesn't feel it. Also, that's when we find out the cops lied. She goes, "I know my dad's hands." My dad had very delicate artistic hands, and the hands are like meat hooks. They're Archie Bunker hands. That's when Tom shows the first and only sign of emotion. He realizes if they were lying, oh crap, Tony. And he he thought no concern about Laura. Laura's not even mentioned again. Not saying right or wrong, but Laura was a model. She was older. She had someone to go to. Tony has nothing. Tony has Tom. And so that's his charge. And we lead to one of these other horrific scenes that I think is a great horror movie thing. It really is. Top 10 scariest horror yeah. movie scenes. Tony goes to, to the theater in the town, which is actually the Fox Theater in Venice. To, and on the marquee is Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye 1950. Film noir. And that should be indicator. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. You're not going to see tomorrow. <laughs> and right after she walks in... The ticket taker, can't do it fast enough, puts up the close sign, shuts everything down. And I'm going to use a Bruce Campbell term of shemping because that ticket taker was Glory Katz, one of the writers and directors of of this movie. Man, however you can save money, do it, do it. And she goes and watches this movie, which is not Kiss Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, a film noir starring James Cagney. It is Gone with the West. Yes, with James Caan and Stephanie Powers, but also Sammy Sammy Davis Davis Jr. Also, it was released a year after. It was 1974, I believe. And once again, they mentioned that they lost control of the movie. They did not do the final edit of this movie. But it's still brilliant to me that they shot it in 71. It was released in 73. 73, And it includes a movie from a year in the future. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> Boom. It's insane. So anyway, Tony goes in. She sits down. She has her popcorn. Lay it out for me, brother. And so right before the movie starts, she's looking in front. There's like maybe two other people now. One guy in the front row. He's turning around with his arm on the seat looking at her. They're all wearing black and white dour clothing. And then as slowly as she's watching this movie, people come in to the movie theater, including the albino. And I have to say, during grad school, my wife and myself, to take a break, we would go and see movies. And I watched movies by myself. And I was freaked out. I would always sit in the very back so no one would sit behind <laughs> me. And still it would freak me out. And this is a perfect scene where she's watching a movie and slowly you watch people come in. And they're all ghouls. <laughs> Jason, it's the best scene in the movie. It is. There are a lot of cool scenes in this movie. This, this to me is one of the top ten scariest horror movie scenes ever she's just sitting there eating popcorn and people come in and fill up the seats behind her until finally somebody comes in and sits a couple seats away from her and she looks over and sees that person and they have blood coming out of the eye and then slowly she looks around and sees the empty theater is completely full of these creepy ghouls and she gets up and she tries to get out. The doors are locked. And they just sit there. That's the thing that yeah. really gets me is they're just like, we know you're yeah. not going anywhere. She tries the door. She's screaming for help. It is such a wonderfully done shot. Such a wonderfully done sequence. I'm like, I could not improve upon that. And the final scene of the stark white background of the film screen and her hand with blood reaching out, this, like reaching out. And that's the end of Tony. Tony was played by an actress named Joy Bang. Bang was her married name. And she only acted in like eight movies. She had this look that was really popular at the time. I think she dated Jimi Hendrix. And she was very much into the artistic scene in New York. After these, you know, these eight movies in the early 70s, she stopped. She reverted back to her maiden name. And I think she's a nurse now. So, okay, so we see the blood moon again. And our Letty's alone. Tom is going to town. It's dead. There's, There's no nothing one. going on. That theater, its lights are off. So he's kind of, he never has any urgency to like trying to find Tony. And he gets attacked by a woman. Scratches him. Another great kind of red herring moment. He's running along the street and there are all these display windows. I just kept waiting. I thought somebody was going to be in those windows jumping out at him. It was a really clever little no. thing. And meanwhile, Arletti is like starting to bleed out of the eye. Back and forth, forth. cross-cutting between Tom and Arletti alone at the house. Tom's out there. A woman finally stops and says, can you help me? They came to our house. She's like, my husband's still there. And he looks at her and all of a sudden she's bleeding out of the eye. And he's like, I can't help you. He goes, I'm very sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in, in the most boring way, in the most boring way you could say something. And meanwhile, Arletti, you know, what do we do when we're alone? We start stabbing ourselves in the leg. She can't feel any more pain. I know. And then she starts throwing up bugs and lizards into the sink. What the hell is going on? And, and, I, and that's what I'm thinking. Where I go to your question: Are these zombies? What are these things? They're ghouls. Her body temperature is dropping. She's stabbing pins. And her leg, and she doesn't feel any pain, and she's 
Like throwing up like well, and, and, beetles and, and cockroaches and lizards. And meanwhile, we're hearing her dad, his little diary entry about how he was shaving and he severed a finger. Yeah, and he just pulled it off. Pulled it off and he's like, I don't feel a thing. And it's, when Tom is, is in town and he's all being beset yeah. by these things, he ends up hiding behind cars that aren't his. At no point does he try to run back to his own car and drive home or get out of there. At that point, no holds barred. I just met you, Arletti, yesterday. Yeah. I think he's part of this. Because the police show up. Two police officers show up. They're what? like, disperse. And I'm like, wait, there was no crowds anywhere in the street. <laughs> I think of like Lieutenant Drebin. You know? <laughs> like, please disperse. There's nothing to see. <laughs> Jason, it's just such a weird thing. Because the cops come and, and it gets into the whole timeline thing. When did this start? Is this just an overnight thing? I get a feeling that it's been going on for a while. So the cops should not just be all of a sudden coming in. It should be a mobilizing force of more people. It shouldn't just be two yahoos. But one cop starts bleeding from the eye, turns and shoots his partner, yeah. and everybody eats him. And then we dance to Arletti, and finally her father, Joseph Lang, shows up. And he's going to recollect... Why this is happening. He's going to rock like the story of the dark stranger showing up a hundred years ago. A minister was part of the Donner Party. Okay, because that was a group of American pioneers who migrated California. It's up in Truckee, California. So northern California. Northeast of Sacramento. I had a car breakdown at the Donner. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember, I'll never forget, my car broke down. And I'm like, ah, the Donner Pass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went, ah, crap. At what point do I start eating my fingers? <laughs> and, and that's what happened. In the Donner Party, between the winter of 1846 and 1847, they were snowbound in the Sierra Nevadas around Truckee, California. And they had to resort to cannibalism. And out of the 87 people who entered, 48 survived. And this dark stranger was a minister. And he... He's recollecting his story to a hunter around Point Dune area saying, I tasted human flesh and I now have a new god. A new master. A new master. It's clearly Michael Greer, the actor who played Tom, who's playing this role. Absolutely. Long, lanky. The first time I saw it, I went, oh, you, you don't see the face, but the physical, everything about it. I said, that's Tom. And when the blood moon returns, he'll come from the sea. And he'll lead them inland. And so her dad is now trying to fight off whatever's taking over his body. And he's like, you should have never came here. You should have left. And he's putting blue paint on his oh, face. Oh, he goes blue man groups. I was to play, play the drums. <laughs> he totally blue man groups it. He freaks out, throws a bunch of blue paint on his face. And she remembers Charlie's statement. And she ends up putting him on fire. At one point he goes, it's too late for me. It's, I've already tasted human flesh, which is not something I ever want to admit to anybody. No, exactly. I mean, yeah. It's like, and then Tom comes. He so, shows up the next morning in the smoldering ashes of which, the house. Which I love. You walk into a house. Here's the thing. My dad worked at a cemetery, so I've been around that. Can't imagine what it would smell like if you burnt a human to death in a home and you walk into that place. Tom walks in. He's super casual. Yeah. He goes, hey, Arletti, how's, how's things? Yeah. You know, it's like, and she he, stabs him. She freaks out. Shears. Yes. Tom, at this time, he's been scratched by a woman in downtown. That stab in the arm and that scratch really put a toll on Tom. 
She bandages him up, puts him in bed, and he recollects a dream, which sounds like the Donner Party. It sounds like he is the dark stranger. He's talking about coldness in a forest. At this point in the movie, I'm thinking, well, Tom is the dark stranger. I mean, this is all part of a cycle that's coming. It's the next morning, and then the ghouls... There's far more ghouls on that skylight. Boom. <laughs> and they start bursting through the Matrix-like. skylight. Matrix-like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then they start coming through these other windows. The house looks completely different from the inside than it does from the outside. Yeah. All these skylights and windows and, and stuff, you don't really see that from the outside. So they come in and it's like, whoa, ghoul central. We got to fight this stuff off. Not sure what's going on because... They don't attack each other, but they're trying to attack Arletti, who's clearly one of them. Tom smacks one of them with a bar. And Tom's bleeding from the ear, so he's one of them now too, right? Yeah. I mean, It was very confusing. It, it was. And so there's this whole battle. Somehow Tom and Arletti get away. The ghouls attack the guy that Tom knocked down. Yeah. Again, not really sure how that works. One of those not consistent... What are we doing? What are the yeah. rules with these ghouls? Oh, the rules with these ghouls. Yeah. I never knew. What are the rules with these ghouls? That's my story. So they, they get away. They're on the beach. They make it way to the beach, which is a perfect place. Like, that's where you want to put yourself. You don't want to drive out a Point Dune. No. You want to make the beach where you already know that they go to watch. Because, Jason, what you want is a really narrow strip that has the ocean on one side and sheer bluffs on the other. That's a great escape route. That's not trouble at all. They're doing their Planet of the Apes deal. And then... People are watching them. The ghouls are coming but, down. But they're not even watching them. They're watching the ocean. Watch the ocean. And so they go out into the water. That's their decision. Tom is lost. And it's just Arletti and the and sea. And that's when I totally thought Tom would be, like, reappear and be the, the dark stranger. And I think he does. They had their money. If I could go back in time, I'd just drop some money on their and say, make your movie. And then it's a voiceover from Arletti where she's like, the last thing I saw was a setting sun, blood red. They did not let her drown. They pulled her from the surf, built fires as beacons, dressed her to offer to the dark stranger who returned. And he let me go with a story that condemned me. I made it back and they put me here. So they bookend it. She's yes. Back at the asylum. And we finish with... No one will hear you scream. And she screams it, which reminds me of Alien. Depending on the version, you also will hear Hold On to Love. Which I, I love that song. I love that you love that song. She also sings, is it called Dink's Reverie or Dink's? There's a song, that a folk song that I really like. And she sings it okay. on her album. We'll link out to it. But so Michael, number one, who's the Messiah of Evil? Is it Arletti? Is it Tom? I mean, who, who is this Messiah of Evil? I personally think it's Tom because she's not going to do a whole hell of a lot from where she is. She's in this asylum. What do you think? Part of me thinks it's Tom. Tom's been called this place. 100%. And he disappears in the water. And at the end, he comes back out as a dark stranger. But then part of me thinks Messiah is supposed to be a person who spreads the word. And Arletti in this insane asylum spreading the word to other insane people. Is she really the Messiah? And then, are these zombies? No. I I do not believe they're zombies. I think they're ghouls. And I think that's the best word for them. They're ghouls. They're not zombies. This is not a zombie movie. They aren't the dead coming back. They're people who are being transformed into cannibals. Like cannibal monsters. 
Ghouls like, do have a technical term. It's like somebody who robs graves. Yeah. I don't think they're zombies. I don't think they're vampires. No. And I thought, well, ghoul's probably the best term for them. What about the idea that this is our, on our lady's mind? She's in an insane asylum. She's recollecting a story. It ends in an insane asylum that she could have just made all this up. I mean, that's there, but I, I prefer to think that the, the movie happened. I mean, that's just my personal thing. I think it's much more horrifying if she's in an asylum and all of this is made up. It's because something very horrible happened to her that her mind created this whole story to block out whatever actually happened to her. And that's more horrifying to me. I would rather believe that she experienced all of those things, that the movie actually happened, and then she's there and she's going, ah! Michael, would you recommend this movie? Oh, 100%. Without a doubt. I've mentioned it before. I do believe this would be a prime candidate for a remake. And I would consult the original filmmakers, say, where were you going? Because it's shaky, but there are so many great things. If you're into Lovecraft, you got to watch this. And again, I think one of the 10 scariest things I've ever seen in my life, the, the theater scene. So I would recommend this. Would you? I really enjoy this movie. The Code Red release has remastered where it's beautiful to watch. I agree with, with you, Michael, that if you're a Lovecraft fan, this should be up there with Lovecraft movies. There's so many references to it. I know that they believe that they intended to make an art film. They had to make a horror movie because that's what was required, but they made an art film. I think it's shot beautifully. It's not a perfect movie, and when you start pulling back and looking at the plot, you're like, oh, this kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. The Ralph scene, the movie theater scene, are two of the most horrific movie scenes that even today, that's still town to test. Like, they are scary. I thoroughly enjoy this movie and recommend it. It's always telling to me, now that we've done this movie, will I watch it again? Yes, I will watch this movie again. Movies like Carnival of Souls, Phantasm, Suspiria are some of my favorites. And and this shares that quality of being where is it this a dream? It seems like it's pulled out of reality and you're not sure what you're, like the setting actually is, like what's really going on. I would totally say Picnic Lightning. Oh, yes. the IPA. I would recommend several of these. <laughs> I won't recommend this once. I will recommend four of these. It's, it comes in a four pack. It's, it Brewery West, again, they do such good beers. Any other takeaways, Michael, on this film? Toss it back at you. No, no, only that you probably need to eat and and lay down. (laughs) You suggested a hazy beer for a hazy movie because there's so much dreamlike quality to it. I think the two were a great marriage. The movie leaves itself open to interpretation, even if the filmmakers say it's really not. That's what I love about a movie is when you when you can look at it. Three different people can look at a movie, get three different things out of it. So I think that kind of wraps it up here. Absolutely. Please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you listen. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And check out our website. This is Beer and Beer Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. I gave my